Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And The Naked Scientist is brought to you by Grolsch Premium Lager. Choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Yeah, that's what it says. It says choose interesting. Don't send me emails about that. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Come on, sorry we're late. Sorry we're late <laughs> this morning. Okay, so what, mobile microbial cross-section, what's that about? Well, there's this story which has come out this week from the University of Oregon. And scientists there have been wondering whether the gadget that now outnumbers the human race on Earth and which officially, as they point out at the beginning of their paper, this is James Meadows and his colleagues, uh, that there are more people on Earth with access to a mobile phone than a toilet. Can we use a mobile phone as a way to measure what's living on us and in us and what microorganisms we come into contact during our day-to-day business? And what they did was to say, well, we touch our phones on average 100 to 150 times per day. It makes it the most handled must-have gadget that most of us have in our pockets and in our handbags. So they got a group of 17 volunteers, they swabbed their index fingers and thumbs, they also swabbed the screens of their smartphones, and they extracted DNA from those swabs and used the DNA signatures to work out what bacteria were living on the people and then on the phones. And they found there's a really, really close match between people's hands, in other words, their microbiome, and their phone and mm. what this tells you is that things we contact, we obviously transfer bacteria onto, we knew that. But then what it is showing is that our phone can be used as a proxy measure of our microbiome. Why this is important is that when we go through an environment, whether we sit in a chair, work at a table, type on a computer keyboard, we're interacting with that environment and depositing bacteria and picking up bacteria. Mm. Now, those bacteria we pick up may not stay on our skin for very long, but they may stay on the phone for longer. We can therefore use the phone as a record of the kinds of bugs we've had interactions with during our day-to-day. And this means that we could, for instance, use this in the hospital. You could have a screening system so that when a doctor or nurse comes into hospital, they could have their phone screened and you could then say, ah, you're bringing into the hospital this nasty infection. Go home or go and wash your hands. Or you could conversely 
swab them on the way home from the hospital and say, well, you're about to take home this rather nasty thing with you and give it to your family. <laughs> let's, uh, let's look at your infection control practices. And then there are wider implications. We can begin to marry up why certain people succumb to certain diseases. Perhaps they're having incidental contacts with certain classes of microorganisms. So they're saying this is a first step towards instituting this sort of screening and this better understanding of how we interact with the world around us. But it's a first step that's an important one. That's really fascinating. But what's even more fascinating, and I wonder if you can explain this, is that uh, the DNA analysis of the bugs recovered from the swabs um, in this experiment uh, could accurately tie a phone to a person more so even in women than men. I'm fascinated by that distinction. Mm, well, I thought you might be, but I was diplomatically not mentioning it on the grounds that it <laughs> might, might lead to accusations of sexism if we speculate that the reason that the women's phones had a, a class or a, a cross-section of bacteria that more naturally or more accurately mirrored their own microbiome than the men's did, perhaps because the women were spending more time on the phone. I don't know. Uh, the other possibility is that women don't have pockets and so they tend to carry their phone and t therefore touch it more often than men do so there's more likely to be a transfer of the microorganisms than, than the men which is accounting for that slightly higher correspondence of, um, of the bacteria on the phone and on their hands. Mm -hmm. Okay, our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask Chris on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Sean, we're coming to you in just a moment. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Sean, in Soweto, hi. Hi. Um, I've got an interesting question. Chris, I, I, I listened to both times when you spoke about yawning and that you said it was linked to a primal primal instinct that we have in group, uh, group setting. My son has autism, and for a long time I tried to get him to fall asleep. And uh, I, I would yawn, but he never ever yawned back at 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 me. Never. Now, I've ne I've never observed it. And I and 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 what I know is with autism, there's a little bit of a one can't emp have empathy with um with people. One doesn't have empathy. And I was wondering if it's possible that yawning is also linked to being able to have empathy with people around you. Hello, Sean. That's the most amazing question, and uh -huh. I'd never thought of that. And what a brilliant thought. I don't know the answer because I don't know if anyone's actually done the research on this. I suspect they have because this whole contagious yawning idea stems from the idea that people are watching other people and it's, it sort of spreads like a ripple through a community as one person yawns and the other then yawns in sympathy in order to raise alertness. But you've got to have an awareness of, of the other person and want to... Uh, be empathic with empathic with them to make that happen. So therefore, it fits that someone who is diagnosed with autism and therefore may have a problem relating socially to what other people are doing, that that may manifest. I'm going to going to go and take that away and ask uh, some friends of mine, including Simon Baron Cohen, if I can, who's an autism researcher in Cambridge, because I think that's a brilliant question, and I don't know the answer, and I don't want to give you some faffy answer. I want to see if there's proper evidence based on this. If I can't give it to you this week, I'll definitely have something for you next week. How about that? All right, Sean, are you happy with that? Uh, can I quickly give you just one other thing I've, I've thought of, just uh, uh, and and you can use it because I'm not very I don't know lots about neurological science or whatever. But your primal instincts aren't they lodged in the same places where your um, ability to em to have empathy is? I think it's a small part of the brain, and I I don't want to mention what. I, yeah, but I think the obligato obligato or something like that. Ah, well, you're thinking of part of the brain stem, the medulla oblongata, mm. and 
whilst this does contain a lot of the circuits that are involved in regulating animal function, and what I mean by that is blood pressure control, uh, it, next door to that is the bit that controls breathing, also some of your movements of your head and neck come out of that part of the brainstem, and the thing that keeps you alert and awake originates from there. But uh, the, the whole point about relating to what other people are doing, that's much higher level brain processing. You've got to be able to decode faces or emotions, you've got to read uh, other people's behaviour and put yourself in their shoes, asking yourself if I was in their shoes what would I do. Those sorts of things are much higher uh, levels of brain activity which go on further up uh, towards the, the cerebral cortex rather than in the brainstem which is more concerned with just keeping you breathing and keeping you, your blood pressure and heart beating. Let's go to Francis in the Val. Hi. Good morning, Reddy, and good morning, Chris, and the listener. Um, my question is very small and simple. I just wanted to have been thinking, how come uh, for all this existence of the world, the sun keeps on maintaining the heat? The, the thing is like melted lava, that it, it can never cool down. Like if a mountain erupted, the lava would get there, that red melted rock is like what is coming out from the sun. But with time, it solidifies to rocks. What happens that the sun's own stays forever? So the sun never cools down, that's what you're saying, Francis. Okay. Hi, Chris. Francis. Well, the, the answer is the sun isn't cooling down. The sun's actually getting hotter. In the same way that as you light a fire and as the fire develops and burns more brightly, it puts out more heat because the chemical reactions are speeding up. The sun is a giant nuclear reactor. It's a big ball of gas and dust, largely dominated by hydrogen. It's fusing the hydrogen, in other words, causing hydrogen atoms to stick together, and they turn into a new element called helium, and the sum of four hydrogen atoms sticking together to make one helium atom means that there's some mass left over, and mass gets turned into energy, because E energy equals m mass times c, the speed of light squared, that's Einstein's equation, e equals mc squared. So in order to balance the equation, you can turn mass into energy, and some of the energy that's streaming away from the sun is keeping us warm, it's radiating out into space, but it's also fueling the onward reaction of the sun. The sun has a very high temperature, the surface temperature is something like five, 6,000 degrees, and in the centre of the sun, it's something like uh, 100 million degrees. So it's very, very hot. Uh, and so the sun is so hot and it's got a constant reaction going on which is actually accelerating and therefore it's getting hotter, not colder and as a result it won't solidify any time soon. In fact, as the sun ages, it's currently about 5 billion years old, when it gets to about 10 billion years old it will, it will have puffed up into a red giant which will be so big that the sun will stretch all the way from where it is now the 100 million miles or so to where the Earth and Mars are now. So we'll be completely engulfed by the sun in uh, five or six billion years' time. Unfortunately, it will be curtains for us. We'll be fried to a crisp. Mm. Thanks, very, oh, thanks very much, Francis, for the question. There is a, a tweet here, and I see the naked scientists have retweeted it. Um, a young man, this tweet says, a young man in Soweto suddenly started burning in flames, second-degree burns. Any scientific explanation? Well... This is a phenomenon called spontaneous human combustion. People have studied it, but it's contentious, and they're not sure whether it's a real phenomenon, but people have come up with some suggestions to account for it. The various accounts that are given are of people, for no reason whatsoever, spontaneously and suddenly just abruptly bursting into flames. And in some cases, these people get completely consumed by fire, and sometimes there's nothing left. And... One suggestion uh, 
is that because people have got clothing on and you've got fat in your skin, once a process of burning starts, you can melt your own body fat, use your clothing as a wick, and that this then burns you and consumes you. But this begs the question, well, why would someone get a fire started in the first place? What would cause that to happen? One theory is that it's got something to do with the element phosphorus. There is a form of phosphorus called phosphine, which is where a phosphorus atom, P, gets stuck to three hydrogen atoms. So you have this molecule PH3, and this is a gas, and it spontaneously ignites when it mixes with oxygen. And in fact, you can see this happening if you go to marshland in the nighttime. You see this phenomenon of will o' the wisp. You see these sudden flickers of light moving over、mm-hmm. marshland. People used to think it was spooky ghosts and things. And in fact, what's probably happening is that at the bottom of the pond, you've got a lot of sediment with no oxygen in it. And the chemistry in that part of the marsh enables this phosphine gas to get made. It bubbles up to the surface. Alongside things like methane gas, which is also being made in the same environment, mixes with oxygen, effectively detonates and lights the methane, and you get a bit of a whoosh, whoo, like that, and a bit of a flame.、Mm-hmm. People have suggested that the bacteria that live in our guts, because there's an absence of oxygen inside our intestines, it's possible that some of the bugs in there could make some phosphine gas. And that therefore people effectively fart themselves on fire because、oh. you deploy a fart which has got some phosphine <laughs> in it. It lights in the presence、Ooh. of oxygen when it gets into the outside world. This sets fire to your clothing, and the clothing then acts as a wick,、uh. soaks up the melting body fat, and you are consumed by fire. Doesn't、um, no one knows if it's true. Very speculative, but that's the best theory anyone's come up with. I hope it's not true. I'm petrified. <laughs> oh my word! Just hold, hold it in, Reedy.、Really. Ah! <laughs> Let's go to oh you know the the story of the moment hey you know in Bryanston. Yes, okay.、Uh, two days ago on the Tsoli、uh, Gwala show, there was some explanation about、uh, there was a guy I think it was a, a psychologist who, who talked yeah, about Suarez. Hey. Yes, he said he had、uh, predicted that Suarez would do it. So I just wanted to know is there any scientific explanation for that? Okay, so Luis Suarez always biting his opponents or teammates. In fact, it was a psychologist on this show who said that it's more a psychological thing, and uh, uh, you know the fact that he chooses to bite rather than kick someone is、uh, fascinating from a psychological point of view. And someone else was、uh, taking bets that Suarez is going to do it again. So, Chris, is there a scientific explanation? Well, yes, it's human behaviour.、Mm-hmm. You've got、um, testosterone-charged, high-energy, high-stress environment where someone's running round in front of thousands of people. They're very pepped up. They desperately want to win. Very competitive. You've got someone else who's got the same idea, but they're on the other side. And in the same way that wars break out and people fight, there's a war on the football field, and people just aggressively attack each other. And it seems to be worse in men, probably because of testosterone.、Um, either way, it's unacceptable behaviour, and it's quite right that if you go around biting people, which transmits diseases and is thoroughly unacceptable,、mm. then you get a ban. So I'm very glad he got a ban.、Um, As to predicting that, well, you can predict this because if someone has a track record of behaving in in this sort of way, then it's more likely than not. If you say, "Well, I think this is going to happen," that if there's a World Cup round the corner, it's got a high odds of happening, and、yeah. sure enough, it happened. So it's really basically coincidence that someone said it's going to happen because someone else probably said it's not going to happen. But we're not going to talk about the person who said it's not going to happen because they were wrong, and so we have this sort of bias towards. 
sort of mm. what is what's called publication bias. People tend to have a preponderance to say things about positive things and repeat positive information that does appear to have some kind of positive outcome. People ignore things that don't fit their model or don't fit the mould. They don't they don't talk about those. So as a result, we end up being, uh, I think, fixated on the coincidence and assuming it's got significance when it hasn't. Okay, Rick in Morningside. Hi. Hi. I have a thermodynamics question. Carry on, please, Rick. Are you live on air? Let's say that um, uh, I'm making tea and I open the refrigerator to get the milk out, pour the milk into the tea and close the door of the refrigerator. Is that more thermodynamically efficient than taking the milk out, closing the door, putting the milk in, coming back and opening the door again and closing it again? Hi, Rick. Well, it's a difficult one to answer, but just for the sort of clarification of the question, is it better to leave the fridge door open for a while while you Mm. do the business with the milk, or should you open and close the fridge door? Yeah. The bottom line is that when you open the fridge, the fridge door is sealed from the room and the fridge door is insulated because there's a very big thermal gradient difference in temperature between the inside of the fridge and the outside of the fridge. And when you open the door, the first thing that's going to happen is that the cold air inside the fridge, which is much denser than the warmer air in the room, is going to fall out of the fridge onto the floor and it's going to pull in behind it uh, warmer air. So immediately the temperature inside your fridge is going to go up. Now, if your fridge is like my fridge, absolutely stuffed to the gunnels and there's virtually no space in there, (laughs) then the amount of air that will fall out when you've got the door open is relatively small. And therefore, the amount of warm air that will go in is relatively small. The thing, therefore, that's determining most of the temperature of the inside of your fridge is going to be the stuff that's in there. That Mm. stuff is going to start picking up energy from the room as soon as you open the door. So the bottom line is that you're going to get very quickly the cold air falling out and warm air going in anyway, regardless of how long you leave the door open, pretty much. But the longer the door stays open, the longer the things in the fridge are going to start soaking up warm air, warm energy from the room, higher energy from the room by by basically radiation of infrared from around the room and Mm -hmm. and contact with that warm air. So the bottom line is keep the door closed as much as possible because actually that stops your food getting much as much energy as it otherwise will from the room and going up in temperature. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Chris. A pleasure chatting to you. We'll do so again next week. Likewise. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Great questions too. See you soon. Indeed. Bye-bye. And The Naked Scientist was brought to you by Grosch Premium Lager. Choose interesting. Not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.